0: Welcome to this week's episode of The Envelope. Yvonne, it's great to talk to you as always.
1: Same, Mark. You know, we took a little bit of a break, but I'm really glad to be back because we're deep into the Emmy season now. Nominations were recently announced and we have lined up an impressive roster of nominees for our next few episodes. Why don't you tell us who you have for us this
0: week? I talked to Bill Hader, a multiple Emmy nominee this year for Barry, a show in which he is, and I have to take a deep breath before I say all this, actor, director, writer, co-creator, and executive producer. And the show really just feels like such a remarkable expression from him, this dark comedy about a hitman who wants to become an actor and how those worlds collide.
1: Yeah, you know, it's been really interesting to see where he's taken this dark comedy, especially this season. You know, a moment that stands out for me is that motorcycle chase scene in 710 North.
0: I go down that off-ramp sometime, (laughs) and it is terrifying now.
1: Yeah, like, my blood pressure, like, if I had taken it after watching that scene, it would have been off the charts. But even the way the characters have all gotten sort of so much more emotionally complex, especially the character of Barry, like the depths of his psychological damage that they explored this season. Like, it's so amazing to see. And I don't know that this is what people would have expected from him, you know, coming out of SNL and doing characters like Stefan or all those impressions. It's been really fun and interesting to see like where he's taken this character and this show.
0: But one of the things I was so surprised by in talking to him is when we were talking about the darkest and most disturbing things on the show is when he laughed hardest (laughs) while we were talking, and he somehow wears this all really lightly. He's, like, perfectly pleasant, a delightful person to talk to, and he's making this show about these extremely damaged and troubled people.
1: God, what I would give to just, like, spend an hour talking about all our traumas with Bill, but maybe you had a more (laughs) lighthearted conversation... Let's get into it right now.
0: Bill, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Congratulations on all the Emmy nominations for the third season of the show. I'd imagine it must be particularly exciting for the show to have gotten so many kind of craft and behind-the-scenes nominations. I mean, a comedy series being nominated for its stunt work feels kind of unusual.
2: Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I was really happy about that. Wade Allen's our stunt coordinator. He did a, he and his whole team did just an amazing job.
0: And then this season, it just felt so rich in the way that it explored all the different characters and even the style of the show seemed to develop. I'm wondering for you, like what's different about playing Barry in season three versus when you were playing him when the show began in season one?
2: Well, I mean, in this season, his back was against the wall a little bit more. And the, you know, the, f- the first episode, he finds out that Gene Cousineau knows who he is. So he's kind of scrambling, you know, I mean, to put it mildly more on edge, you know. <laughs> oh, just let me go, Barry. I'm not going to tell anybody. What, you want to go to the cops? Of course not. You're a bad actor, Mr. Cousineau. So you're going to hold me hostage? Until you book me apart. That's not the way it works. We're talking about me here. That could take years.
0: Yeah, I know that you're a big movie fan, and I just, I keep thinking to myself, like, if this was a, a movie, like, you'd never quite get to this point with yeah. these characters. It really is only the fact that we've spent so much time with them over three seasons now that we can know them as well as we do.
2: Yeah, it's, I mean, I watch some TV, but I, I, I to to be honest, I don't watch a whole lot of television. It's mostly from, you know, reading books and, and you know, kind of having that character depth and following someone for a period of time. And, you know, to me, every season was always just kind of one big four-hour movie, mm-hmm. you know, and and trying to keep it about our main characters, what the main characters are going through, not deviating too much and yeah you know each season you know in the writing kind of forcing ourselves to go down interesting paths and you know Mm -hmm. you're wrong a lot you go down one area and it doesn't work you know or you try to do something else and it doesn't work but you have to kind of test it and make it complicated and what ends up happening is when you consciously try to make it complicated it smothers it and it becomes something that doesn't feel real I'm finding when you can kind of add in emotions that you've felt or one of the other writers have felt or one of the actors have felt Mm -hmm. that then is the engine to the thing
0: and then when you go into each new season like going into this most recent season do you have like movies or books that you're using as source material like is is there sort of like a syllabus to go with each season of the of the show
2: Not consciously, no. I mean, sometimes we'll watch a thing to kind of say, uh, you know, it has this feeling to it, but never consciously going in. it's, It's funny. It's usually when we're done and we're mixing it, which is the last stage of the process, and I'm on the mixing stage watching the episode, that it'll hit me, you know, Man, I like Taxi Driver. <laughs> you know, or it's like your influences are just so obvious to me. Or man, I like the Cohen Brothers. You know, it's just like, oh brother.
0: And was there anything that jumped out at you when you were mixing season three?
2: Um, I love watching old movies and and like old Italian movies, and and the way that they block things, you know, and mm-hmm. wider angle, and it's the same kind of, or, or roughly the same aspect ratio that we shoot in. So will have someone in the, you know, the foreground, middle ground, background, it's it's all very full and very alive. And there's just a a lot going on in the frame. And those DPs, I think, and those filmmakers were very much inspired by painting. Mm -hmm. So the the frame is really well balanced. I really respond to that. And And then, of course, you then... I'll be talking to Carl Hurst, at D.P., and he's like, you know, Cohen Brothers love early Italian movies. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, it always comes back to the Coen Brothers. <laughs> We're just ripping them off, you know, and just, yeah, you think, oh, no, I have this really kind of more interesting kind of, uh, you know, thing. It's like, no, you like the Coen Brothers.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and now even just back to the very beginning of the series, it opened with you know, Barry having just killed someone and it sort of sets him on this journey to try to change and become a better person. And throughout the season, and especially this season, that theme of forgiveness and redemption just keeps coming back. Do you think redemption's even possible for Barry at this point? Yeah, I I don't know. I I don't
2: think so. But I mean, we're, we're working on season four right now and we start shooting that in two weeks. And I'm writing the back half of the episodes right now and you're, you know, with, with Duffy Boudreaux and Liz Sarnoff, and we're still kind of going like, yeah, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> he's trying to figure himself out.
0: And is it ever strange for you to see how people respond to the character of Barry? I mean, he's this guy that, I guess in some ways I want to ask the question, do you think that he's a good person who makes... Bad choices, or he just is he just kind of an essentially bad person?
2: I I don't know. I go back and forth on it. I mean, I I do think that he's made a ton of bad choices, and that this season, because he's in a corner, he lashes out more. And and I think he's someone tr- who tries to be a good guy, you know. But like a lot of us, when he's under a lot of pressure. He lashes out, but I think. The thing I realized with Barry more in season three was how uh, self-centered he was, that, that he he says everything's for Cousineau and, and Sally and he cares about people, but on some level he does, but on another level, he he's really about himself, because if he really cared about those people, he would leave alone or turn himself in or, you know, but he's not going to sacrifice himself.
0: Like you're really sort of, a lot of times you're putting the viewer in this like uncomfortable position of like, am I supposed to like this guy? How am I supposed to be? And yeah. I find for myself, I never quite know how to feel about him when I'm watching the show.
2: Yeah, I I don't know. I I like that about it. You know, it's I mean, there's something very kind of human about it, and and also just trying to portray him as honestly as possible. And I think by, by virtue of that, it kind of is this roller coaster where you kind of go, well, what would he do right now? And and sometimes what he would do is kind of. You know, he does a job to give Kusino's, you know, son money so he can help him out. And he says, I'm going to leave you alone. And it's like, oh, that's nice. But then (laughs) there's a lot of other shit he does. It's pretty fucking terrible. You know, so uh, there's no big plan with him, which is what's interesting. We're always kind of taking it scene by scene and going, well, what would he do here? In the writing, there's always kind of like an end goal for the season. You know, first day writing, I pitched... You know, he gets caught. Like Kusno knows in the first episode, in the last episode, he's caught. You know, we're riding towards that. But at any moment, something will happen that we go, oh, maybe that doesn't make sense anymore, you know, and you you go another way. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of trial and error. So it's, it's interesting hearing everybody talk about it because the truth is, I don't know what's what's going on with him most of the time.
0: But it seems like if anybody should understand that character... It should be it me. Be
2: yeah, you. Yeah.
0: What, what is it about him that makes him such a mystery?
2: You know, some of his... In, you know, there's a scene in the movie... In the movie, in the show, uh, in episode five, when he sits down and he, he tries to connect with Sally by telling her all the things he Sally. can do to her boss.
1: So you break into her house?
2: Oh, she'd never know I was there. You know, the whole point is to isolate her and make her feel like she's going insane. So I would just do little things, like replace her dog with a slightly different dog or, you know, change the furniture in her house so she thinks she's shrinking, you know, basic stuff. Most of it I learned in the military, some of it on a subreddit. It's a funny scene, but it's a scene that I'm all, I was, as the writer, I found it funny. But then as the actor, I was like, why the hell is he saying this to her? (laughs) You know, and then you just go with it and it. You know, it was really funny, but I'm like, God, he's so dumb. There's just moments where I'm like, he's so stupid, you know? But there's a sweetness to him. I, I don't know. There's, it's 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 complicated, but um, to me, what's fun about this process is discovering, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I like to be prepared. But the acting's kind of the one thing I probably think about the, the least. I don't think about it even how to play a thing. Uh, there's a scene where I get mad at, or Barry gets mad at Sally, and at work that's really mm-hmm. disturbing. And you know, we wrote it that it, it just says, you know, Barry blows up at her and says, "If I don't do this, I don't live." And we did Sarah's side first, and I did it. And then when it came around on me for some first take, I just did what you saw. I started hitting myself. I just go crazy. My
1: show we're saying the same thing.
2: We are not saying the same thing! We are not saying the same thing! If I don't do this, I don't live! I have to do this to fucking live! I didn't really think about, you know, it wasn't like I woke up or was in rehearsals and saying this is how I'm going to play it. It just, Mm -hmm. like, happens. Uh, In 308, when the guy has a gun on, when Barry's out at the tree with Albert, just one of the takes, he screams at me and I cover my head and I just let out this weird scream you know, and it's a kind of like induced a panic attack <laughs> which I do not recommend if you're also directing <laughs> so yeah when, uh, when I'm doing this show it's like writing and directing it tend to be the things that I'm constantly focused on mm-hmm. but that's 98 percent of my brain is filled up with that stuff and then it's like I get on my mark and then go okay What am I lying?
0: (laughs) I know this season, I feel like Barry's time as a Marine sort of played into the story a lot more than it had in some of the other seasons. And I'm wondering if you all, did you do research into PTSD or like, how real is sort of like the the depiction of what Barry is is going through and his very real like mental health challenges?
2: Um, Before we did the pilot, I watched the movie Restrepo. Mm -hmm. I thought that was really great. I talked to one vet on the phone. I emailed with another one, but no, I didn't go and hang with anybody who had PTSD or or talk to anybody. It was, you know, you're writing the story and then when his mental state, you know, you, you, you write a scene and then go, well, maybe from where he's at and where he's come from, maybe he would react like this. You know, and then the the satisfying thing is I've had vets tell me that they really appreciated the show.
0: Because this this season also, it's not just kind of Barry's trauma that's being explored, but really Sally and, and Jean as well. Like, was there a sort of a, a conscious decision early in the season that like their sort of individual traumas were going to lead so much of this storytelling?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a thing that happens while we're writing where everybody's stories start kind of mirroring each other. And then all the characters are kind of in this delusional place, which is interesting. You know, there's a fork in the road and one way clearly leads to happiness and the other way clearly doesn't. And they tend to go in the way that doesn't, you know, which I, you know, I think is a very human thing, you know. And so... Sally's storyline with her getting her own show, I thought it was interesting for someone to, to have like a win, you know, for someone to have something that, that worked and that they're, they're good at their job. They have to deal with, you know, notes and, and things like that. But it was Sally telling her story, you know, in an honest way and doing it correctly and it being well-received.
0: Look at your freaking face. It's huge. That face is being seen everywhere this morning. And you're still a 98% on Roddy T's. This is insane. (gasps) It's all (laughs)
2: happening! (sighs) And then, through no fault of her own, it goes away.
0: We are canceling the show. Why? Well, the algorithm felt it wasn't hitting the right taste clusters.
1: Taste clusters? Mm. It's been 12 hours. Don't we need time to get...
0: And then... As you mentioned, a big part of this season for Sally and also for Barry has to do with there's a lot of kind of inside jokes about how television shows get made in in contemporary Hollywood, and in particular kind of the reliance on algorithms and streaming services and the things that, you know, creators go through for their art.
2: Well, the the algorithm thing came from... A friend of mine who had a show on a streaming service and said, hey, you know, we're on the front page of the streaming service. Oh, my God. And I went and looked at it. Like, congratulations. And I said, I'm going to watch this when I get home. And then went to work and I came back. It, I couldn't find it anywhere. <laughs> and then I had to type it in and type in the full thing and scroll down. I went, oh, there it is. And I just was like, that's crazy because if, You know, if you went by that, you wouldn't have Seinfeld. You wouldn't have so many great shows that didn't, you know, great movies, great things that when they started out, they didn't hit uh, immediately.
0: And there's a scene in episode six. uh, Vanessa Bayer is playing a TV executive and she sort of conveys her. She has this whole conversation through like sounds where it's like.
1: So right now the show, it's more. Yeah. Yeah. And you could bring it to more of a, yeah. I I think I
2: know what you're saying. Where did
0: that come from? Because it's it's very funny, but also something about it is very disturbing and unnerving.
2: Yeah, that came from, um, I was writing that scene and I didn't know what the scene was. It just, in the outline, said Sally gets offered a job at Banshee and she reluctantly takes it. Like, that was it, you know. And started writing it. And then I thought, man, when I'm in those meetings with my manager, it's like my manager and the other person, they're just speaking another language. Like, I have no idea what they're saying. Especially when they're getting into deals and rights and all these other things. I'm going, what is happening? So I thought she would just start making noises.
1: And I think that you, Sally Reed, could bring to it more of a Mm. Mm. I don't know what you mean.
0: More with Bill Hader after the break. If you're enjoying this interview and want to keep up with future episodes, make sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, leave us a rating and review. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Envelope and my conversation with multiple Emmy nominee Bill Hader. I want to be sure to ask you a few questions about the 710 North episode for which you've been nominated for directing. And that episode's also nominated for writing and for stunts. And that episode has such a wide range of tones to it. There's this pastoral (laughs) feeling with Fuchs in the desert. There's the sort of nonsense comedy with Morgan, the TV exec. There's Mitch the baker. And then it builds to this motorcycle chase how do you get all those different tones to blend together into a 30-minute show?
2: Yeah, it, it didn't really hit me until I sat down and watched a cut of it, just how insane it is, you know? But it is just kind of like you just approach each scene for what it is, you know? It's like, mm-hmm. here's the Fuchs storyline, we're gonna direct that, you know? Here's the Mitch, here's how that goes. And then obviously the big motorcycle chase, but, you know, you're you're trying to just make sure that you're just telling the story. You know, when Mm -hmm. I'm doing all those things, you're just, for me, I'm always just saying, what's the emotion of the character? What are they trying to get to? What's the the purpose of this scene? And if there isn't a purpose, we should get rid of it or give it some purpose. You know, it's like constantly being hard on the material, which we do in the script phase and in the rehearsing phase, but still have moments where you're, at a location, shooting something, you realize the episode works without the scene in it.
0: And then with the motorcycle chase, did you expect it to become the centerpiece that it kind of is? I'm wondering how you initially conceived of that scene. and And I know that it took you like months of planning to do. Like, did you, when you first thought of it, did you kind of realize how complicated it was going to be?
2: Yes, yes. I mean that—that that was something very early on. I think when we came back from COVID, the first meeting I had pro- in production was to previs the motorcycle chase. Which, for people who don't know what that is, it's like kind of like a computer animated. It's like a crude computer animation of mm-hmm. the sequence. And then in July was when we went out to the freeway and we looked at a bunch of freeways and we decided on the seven ten and in Pasadena and just went. Yeah, this is what it will be. And we did a test to see how what it looked like with these camera bikes to go through the the lane splitting, you know, all that. It was a long process of of just being really safe and seeing if we could do it. And then it was 3 Sundays in September. <clears throat> So we would go at like five in the morning. They shut the freeway down. It's so crazy when you're driving out there and you're seeing like 710 North close from this time to this time. (laughs) And you're like, oh, it's because of us. And then uh, we shot the, just the lane splitting stuff from like seven until noon. Mm -hmm. was the amount of time we could be there on a Sunday. And it was like 100 degrees outside. And we shot that. The second one we did Barry entering the freeway and then the third Sunday, we did everything with the gun and the stunt where the handoff
0: goes wrong. Oh, shit. Damn it. And then, are there ways in which you feel or you, you can tell that your directing skills have grown from season to season? Like, I'm wondering if something like the 710 episode, do you think you would have been able to do that in season one?
2: Uh, oh, no. No, I don't think I would have had the confidence. And I've learned so much. I, I know my faults, you know,
0: mm-hmm.
2: going into it. And when I get in the edit, I go, oh man, I wish I would've, um, I sometimes will shoot too lean, you know, I won't shoot enough coverage sometimes or I won't do as many takes as I should. You know, that was season two. And so on season three, it was making sure that it's like, you know, yes, that works. I know exactly how this goes this, you know. You know, you're kind of cutting it in your head as you're moving along. And uh, so you know exactly where to go in on certain things. And I know I'm only doing it to establish, you know, there's a scene with Joe Montagna and uh, and Henry Winkler and everybody eating dinner outside in episode five. And we did a reshoot of that scene. It was everybody eating and then it, it was like this wide shot. You're only going to use this to establish where they're at so we don't need to run the whole scene. And I'm like, everybody just mm-hmm. sit there and eat. Okay, cut. All right, move in. You know, it's like you don't need them to run the whole thing, you know, and, and my editors actually appreciated that. And I kind of picked up a little of that from working with Hiro Murai when he would come in and direct. And I really liked it. As an actor, uh, I don't like to get worn out by doing a lot of takes that, and then mm-hmm. you see it and you go, oh my gosh, you're never going to, or like, This big in the frame, you know, why are we acting our hearts out? (laughs) You're never going to see this, you know? So uh, I like to preserve the energy and the crew too. It's, I used to, (laughs) I was a PA and I used to work on crews, you know? And so I just know like long hours, they just like, they just kick the shit out of you. It's like demoralizing after a while. So I, I, I like to try to keep it, do a lot of my work in prep. So when you're there, we're all very focused, we know what we're doing. And then weirdly, By doing that, if something comes up, it's easier to pivot because you know what you're trying to achieve instead of going, I don't know what the hell we're doing.
0: You brought up when you kind of were a PA at the beginning of your career, and I I wanted to ask you about that, and that is that time in your career something you still draw from a lot? Like, do you feel like you learned a lot about how sets work? I don't know if you even, like, noticed any specific things you feel like you learned from directors during that time? Like, is that time in your career something you feel like you still really draw from?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the best thing was just the the amount of hard work the crew puts into things. And and no, Mm -hmm. I mean, knowing what all the departments do and who all the department heads are and how each department works was invaluable for me in terms of knowing how to work on things and as a director, uh, what they're gonna want you know, mm-hmm. we just had a props meeting today for season four and it's, I, I can preemptively know what they're going to ask me about <laughs> in each scene and what they're going to want to know, you know? So, but then I think also it's like the directors and people I liked were the people who treated the crew with respect, you know, and was mm-hmm. kind of one with the crew and and knew what the crew was going through. But if you worked on something where the director was a lot of fun, like I was a PA f- off and on not the whole show but off and on on uh the first spider-man sam Raimi was just the best he was so cool and chatted with everybody knew everybody's name and how's it going guys yeah but you know i remember being a pa on that and just like loving going to work man because it was mm-hmm. like i got to watch sam Raimi work i think don uh burgess shot it and he was cool. And like Dick Warlock was on that movie. He was a stunt guy. He was in Jaws. Do you know what I mean? Like you would just hang yeah. out with these people and get these stories being a movie fan and just be like, this is such a cool business and what an amazing job. And that's at Sony. And that's where we do Barry. So it is mm-hmm. crazy for me now to have an office there what? and have two stages with my project there, you know, yeah, is never lost on me how, lucky I am.
0: But do you feel like, was this your goal? Like, is this where you envisioned yourself
2: then? I I always wanted to be directing. Yeah. I mean, from a very, very young age, I was, I watch movies and I would notice who the director was and the writer and that, and that was always what I was very much interested in. But I was never someone who sat at home going, I'm going to, you know, have two stages at Sony and my project and all this stuff. It just never occurred. You know, I'm from Oklahoma. And just the fact that I moved to LA is like, holy shit, you know, <laughs> this is massive. But I wanted to make movies. I wanted to make a thing that I wrote and directed. And But I think on some level, I always, in my head, it was always going to be like a small thing, which I love. I love those movies. And then just because I was on Saturday Night Live and they were like, do you want to go have a meeting at HBO? And then during this meeting at HBO, it kind of came out, didn't think about it. I just said, oh, I'd like to direct the pilot. (laughs) And it was like, well, have you ever directed before? I was like, no. (laughs) I would like to direct the pilot, though. (laughs) And Alec Berg, bless him, was like, I think you could do it. But he's looking at me like, can you do it? (laughs) I was like, no, I'm going to do it. I, I, I'd like to do it. And uh, I don't think I would be able to do it if Alec hadn't vouched for me, man. Yeah, hmm. he, it was huge.
0: And now in your time when you were at SNL, I can't help but wonder, is that dynamic with Lauren Michaels similar at all to like a dynamic with like a Gene Cousineau? Like, is he, it, do you feel like he was a mentor to you in the way that, you know, Gene is a mentor to Barry? Well, I
2: think Lauren's way more successful than uh, <laughs> Cousineau. <'cause>, <know, laughs> And, you know, Lauren's like, you know, when I first got in this, you know, on, on Saturday Night Live, yeah, you do kind of look up to Lauren. But I also, I think I was always someone that kind of tried to, like, keep my distance a bit, too. Like, I would ask him questions uh, that pertain to work, you know? Mm-hmm. And then at the after party, maybe you would ask some questions. It wasn't until later on that I was at the show that I would be like, okay, what was the first season like? Or, um I remember one time it was like one of the cool, like one of those moments when you know, I can't believe I'm sitting at this table right now is him and Steve Martin and they were talking about comedy albums and they were just two fans talking about Nichols and May and early Lenny Bruce and Bob and Ray and mm-hmm. just fans. And I connected because I'm like, I'm a fan, you know, so it was like connecting on that level. Was really exciting for me, but I, I really respected Lauren. I really respected his opinion, but it wasn't as sycophantic. I think as Barry's <laughs> relationship is with Cousineau, where he, you know, he's like a father to him. And, mm-hmm. But like with Lauren, it was never, uh, you know, uh, M- Mr. Michaels. Can I, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. I think one time, I remember I wasn't doing well on the show. I thought, um, and I remember going into his office and saying, "What do you? What can I do?" Mm-hmm You know, I go, what what do you, what do you need for me? And he said, I just have a big cast. You're really good at impressions, you know, and you're putting impression pieces up, but they're all people who are like dead. (laughs) I'm like, well, I like old movies. He's like, okay, you've gotten some of those on, but it'd be nice if you could do impressions of people who are alive and maybe your age. (laughs) But, you know, it was more of that stuff. I didn't want to, like, kiss his ass because I felt like, oh, everybody kisses his ass. So I was just, you know, it was kind of more of a, what do you want, coach? Okay, you got it, you know, and then run off.
0: Is it hard to sort of transition out of SNL world and into back into sort of, like, the the industry at large? Like, I don't know if it's hard to, like, break the rhythms of SNL after it's been a part of your life for so long.
2: It took a a bit, you know? I mean, the nice thing was I was making, I was acting in a lot of movies while I was at SNL, so that that Mm -hmm. was helpful. But definitely going in and and doing Barry and and doing Documentary Now, like Documentary Now was a great show because it was a nice bridge between SNL and Barry, you know, Mm -hmm. where it was this kind of, it was still kind of sketchy, you know, where each episode was its own thing but it was very cinematic. It didn't rely a lot on capital J jokes, you know, hard mm-hmm. jokes, you know? Like there's a difference between performing on a live television show and acting. Mm-hmm. You know, acting is much more interior, it's feelings, the camera's in your face, it's a much different thing. On SNL, we're performing. On documentary now, we were acting, you know? And then in Barry, it became like real acting. And there was another movie I did in there called Skeleton Twins, where I got to Act and then that, you know. So the, it was like stepping stones mm-hmm. out of SNL to Barry. I think.
0: Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I imagine SNL brought you a certain level of sort of fame and notoriety. But like, has the success and the of Barry like ch- changed your sort of level of fame or how it sort of impacts your life
2: at all? Now. No, oh, not really. I mean, we're location scouting now, and every location we go to, people have no idea what the show is. We're always going. It's called. I mean, today we were looking at a house, and the guy goes, "So who's Barry?" <laughs> like a journalist will come hang out with me, and we'll go into a coffee shop, and they'll be like, "Oh, no one's." They always seem disappointed. <laughs> they're like, "They're like, no one's coming over here." Why isn't anybody (laughs) coming over here to, like, pester you so I have something to write about? And I'm like, I know, dude, no one, like, no one cares. (laughs) No one cares. Uh, Darcy Carden used to be our nanny, and uh, she's somebody that gets, you know, completely, people run up to her and love her, you know. And and my kids, she came to my daughter's uh, thing at my daughter's school, and people just lost their minds. Kids were running over, whatever, and my... My daughter was like, Dad, I thought you were, like, famous. (laughs) My kids are always asking me, like, so how do you know that person? I'm like, "Uh, Seth Rogen, I worked with him. (laughs) I'm an actor. And it's like, oh,
0: okay. Before before you go, I just wanted to get back to asking about Barry. But to ask something else about the this season, I, this recent season, that it got so dark. And I'm just wondering if, again, if you knew that at the start or that was sort of like the process of writing or and in some ways, like, how much darker can the show get moving forward?
2: I don't know. It's funny. People always talk about how dark it is. I, I When I go, Hell oh, guys, it's dark, it's because someone has told me it's dark. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I just, I it's the stuff I find interesting. So I guess yes, it will be dark. But people have read the first four scripts, and no one has gone Jesus Christ. You know, they they're like, oh, this is you know, all right. You know, it's 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 all kind of like, huh, oh, all right, interesting. So yeah, we'll see where it goes. But yeah, I think my natural, you know, inclination, the thing I, I I'm interested in, for better or worse, are darker, kind of sad and funny, you know. Even if it's a, at the root of it, a very kind, life-affirming story, I always want to kind of test it against the realities of the world we're in. And so by doing that, you always have to to get a little dark. Mm -hmm. Because I don't find it any darker than what the news is. (laughs) (laughs) You know,
0: but the, the, the news doesn't compete for in the comedy categories at the Emmys.
2: It's a comedy because it's 30 minutes, you know? I always just see I'm doing a story, you know? It's funny, but I just see, I'm like, this is a story, you know? And it's like comedy, drama, all these things. I, I get that. So it is interesting, yeah. It is funny that I'm in the category with, like, Abbott Elementary, which I love. My kids and I love that show, you know? But, yeah, you can't find two different... <laughs> <laughs> or Jason's show you know it's like they're very you know it's very different but they're all great you know I, I can't mm-hmm. believe the categories we're in are just insane I can't believe it I, the acting category I can't believe it at all I mean there's all people on massive fan. I mean Martin Short and Steve Martin are like two of my idols
0: mm-hmm.
2: they have Jason in there who I worked with for eight years and, and Love and and uh, Donald Glover and, and Nick who I just think is fucking amazing and everything you know it's just it's, it's just crazy so, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, I feel very, very uh, lucky.
0: Well, Bill, thank you so much for joining us today. I, I, I really appreciate you being here.
2: No, thank you, man.
1: Mark, that was such a fun conversation. I loved hearing him talk about that moment of sitting table side with Steve Martin and Lorne Michaels and hearing them talk about comedy. Like, it's I, I feel the same way because I've told you this so many times like I'm jealous that you talked to Bill because I wanted to be a fly on the wall and hear the both of you talk about your love of film like I could listen to like two hours of that I'm sure you would have liked to deviate and just asked him about all the things that he watches but I really enjoyed that conversation you know
0: the show could only be so long so I could only deviate into so much nerdery like as we were <laughs> we talking but yes I could I could I personally could definitely have used more next time. The Envelope is a Los Angeles Times production in association with Neon Hum Media. It is produced by Navani Otero and Chloe Chobel and edited by Hiba El-Arbani and Lauren Rabb. Sound design and mixing by Scott Somerville.
1: Neon Hum's production manager is Samantha Allison and their executive producer is Shara Morris. Special thanks to Matt Brennan, Jasmine Aguilera, Shawnee Hilton, Elena Howe, kayla bell patricia gardner dylan harris brandon sides sophie chap amy wong and chris price till next time i'm your host yvonne Villarreal.
0: and i'm mark olson join us next week for an interview with melanie linsky you'll love it see you then